Hey everyone, welcome to Grace Community Church of Willow Street's podcast. If you have any questions or want to learn how you can be more engaged with our church, check us out online at gccws.net, or you can connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. Thanks for listening and enjoy today's message. We are praying that it leads you into a growing relationship with Jesus. What do I do? The scripture reading for this weekend is found in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 to 9. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Thank you very much, Pastor Jarrett. I didn't need to reference a study or a survey by Gallup or Lifeway or Barna or Pew Research to come to this conclusion, life can be unfair. Life can be unfair. That's a fact. We all face difficulties in our lives. We all face trials and even suffering from time to time in life. We wish it would be different. We wish that life would always be easy, always be happy, that there would be no bumps in the road, no complications that we would face in life, but it's not that way. And the reason it's not that way can be traced back to our first parents, Adam and Eve. You probably remember the story very well. Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God created the heavens and the earth and everything in them, created Adam and Eve, placed them in the Garden of Eden. Everything was absolutely perfect. And then Adam and Eve chose to disregard and completely disobey the one direction that God gave them. And in Genesis chapter 3, that perfect union, that perfect garden, that perfect world came to a tumble. We call it the fall. The fall of mankind, such that the world was then from that point on broken and fallen because of the sin of Adam and Eve. Sin introduced into the world that marred the perfect creation of God and set the stage for what the Bible calls and what all of us have keenly experienced in our lives, all kinds of of trials, all kinds of trials. That's what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1. It refers to the variety of trials that we may face in our lives. Now, some of the trials that we face in life are simply the result of living in a broken and fallen world. There is no one to blame for the trials except the brokenness of this world. There are, however, other trials that we face in life that are the result of our own sin or the sins of others around us. Trials are just part of this earth. And that leads to the question, when trials do come into life, how do you handle them? When trials do come into your life, how do you handle them? Do you allow the trials of life to take you down, or do you allow them to build you up? Do you grow up, or do you give up? Do you become bitter, or do you become better because of the trials of life. You know, the decision about what you will do with your trials and how you will weather them, it truly is your decision, and it's my decision. Now, thankfully, God has 
much to say to us about life's trials. And there are a lot of passages that we can turn to, but this weekend we've chosen to go to 1 Peter chapter 1 and look particularly at verses 6 through 9. Context in studying scripture is very important, and it always is. And so to really understand those verses, we have to go back a few verses to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, where Peter reminds us who we are. And in some of the most powerful words of the New Testament, the apostle Peter tells us that we are people who, by the mercy of God, have been born again into a living hope through the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian today, you are sitting here as a Christian, not by any effort of your own, not by any works that you have accomplished yourself, you are here by the mercy and the grace of God. You are here because he looked upon you and he looked upon me in our sinful condition. He loved us with an unconditional love. We know the story, don't we? He sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place on the cross. Jesus bore our sins on that cross so that we might be forgiven of our sin. He rose again on the third today. He lives today. He is seated at the right hand of the throne of God in heaven, and Jesus Christ offers to every one of us the free gift of salvation, the forgiveness of our sin, and a new and eternal life. It has nothing to do with your works, nothing to do with your religion, nothing to do with how good you are, though you may be good and you may do all those good things. It is by the mercy of God, by the grace of God, that we are then, when we trust in Jesus Christ, when we put our faith in him, born again into a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I love that phrase, to be born again, because it is the phrase that Jesus uses in John chapter 3 to describe what happens in the life of a person who chooses to surrender their life and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We say to be born again means literally to be remade from the inside out, to become a new person. And so this is what Peter says. Listen, if you are a Christian today, by the mercy of God, through the resurrection power of Jesus Christ, you are a new creation. You have been born again, and you have been born into a living hope, which means, if you were here on Easter weekend, you have a confident expectation, you live with it, of the future that you will have someday when this life is over. What is that future? That future is heaven. If you are a Christian today, you sit here and you are absolutely confident that when this life comes to an end, you have a new life that immediately begins in the very presence of Jesus Christ in a very real place called heaven. You will have a brand new body. You will have a brand new mind. Everything will be perfect. That is the inheritance Peter talks about in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5. It is an inheritance that every one of us have as followers of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Amen? That's our inheritance. But that is someday. And this is now. And so what Peter then addresses in the remainder of this chapter is how we live life now with that living hope planted in our souls. And the question that he wants us to grapple with is how we handle our trials here on this earth as we await the day when we will enjoy all perfection in a place called heaven. 
So this morning, what I want to do is take you into, let's just think of Trials 101. If you were in college, there'd be Trials 101, 201, 301, Graduate School 401. We're going to go basic this morning, Trials 101. Some of the things I share with you, you're going to say, well, I've known that for years. Well, that's good. Praise the Lord. Get your star. You know, that's great. But if you find some things here that you don't know, you internalize them because no matter who you are, how old you are, where you are in life, you will face trials you have already. There are some coming. You may be in the middle of them right now. So here we go. What does God teach us about trials? First of all, trials are temporary. Trials are temporary. You heard that prayed by Pastor Jared. Look at verse 6. Peter says in verse 6 that they last only for a little while. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, they are short and they are momentary. Now, you remember that Peter is now measuring time in light of eternity. And in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, Peter likes to say that a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. God doesn't measure time the way we do. When we look at the earthly trials that we suffer, he sees them as short and momentary in light of this incredible living hope that we have. And as hard as it is, in the midst of the trials of life, here's a fact that you have to remember. Your trials will someday come to an end. They may come to a very quick end on earth, and if they do not, they will come to an immediate end when you transition from this earth to your hope in eternity. The reality is every trial in life is a temporary trial that has an expiration date on it, and only Christians have that hope. Second truth, trials are unavoidable. They will happen because we live in a sinful and fallen world. There is no one to blame for them. When cancer comes into a family, it is tragic. It breaks your heart. You, you pray and you desire the very best, but you can't point a finger and say, well, the cancer is here because of him or because of her. It comes because we live in a broken and fallen world. Natural disasters happen all around us and all around the world, and we can't blame any one person. They are the result of living in a broken and fallen world. Genesis 3 beautifully outlines that truth for us. But there are trials, friends, that come about by our own sin or the sins of others. Friends, what we see being played out right now in the Ukraine is to be attributed wholly and completely to the evil, sinful maniac named Putin. Absolutely, it is his sinful behavior. It is Putin who has chosen to draw outside the lines of God's perfect creation and to behave in a way that is absolutely wicked and evil. And because of that, there is intense suffering among Ukrainians. He is the one who has created that suffering. But friends, let's bring it down before we think it's all global. The reality is, for example, when a man or a woman decides to be unfaithful to their marriage vows and to commit the sin of adultery, they bring undue suffering into their family. They introduce it by their actions, which are sinful, suffering not only to their spouse, but to their children and possibly even to generations unless someone drives a stake in the ground and say, there it ends. We will not allow that sin to continue to cause trial and suffering in our family. But 
that's also true of another sin that we, we don't like to talk about as much, but it's as critical, and that is the sin of unforgiveness. As a pastor, I've watched how bitterness can be literally inherited by generations within a family, and it is tragic because that bitterness brings trial and suffering to families. When something happens, it should be forgiven so that future generations do not carry that bitterness as some type of awful legacy into their family. Sometimes our trials occur because of our own sins or the sins of others. Now, when Peter is writing to the Christians in 1 Peter chapter 1 in the first century, he's addressing a specific kind of suffering that they were experiencing, and that is a suffering for their faith. They were suffering because they declared Jesus as Savior and Lord of their lives. And because they were following him, Jesus, and because the culture had a different set of values and a different set of standards, it put them at odds with their culture. Now listen, we live in the 21st century and the 21st century United States of America. And, and our nation does not live by the values of Scripture. Our nation does not declare that the Bible is their standard of inspiration, infallibility, inerrancy, authority. Only we as Christians believe that. And so when we stand on the truth of God's word, when we live gospel-centered lives, we have to recognize that we will come at odds with the culture around us. And there will be times when we will suffer because of our faith and our walk with Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus says about those times in John chapter 15, verse 18. He says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. And so the reality is we will suffer. Bottom line is trials are an unavoidable part of our lives. They will happen. The question isn't, are we going to have trials? The question is, how will we handle our trials when they come? That leads to a third truth. Trials can strengthen our faith. Trials can strengthen our faith. In verse 7, Peter teaches that one reason we face trials is so that our faith is, now I love this phrase, proved genuine. And it literally means so that our faith is made stronger, made stronger. When I look back over the course of my life, check me on this, when you think about your own life, when I look back over the course of my life, it was the times of suffering in my life that formed me. Far more than the mountaintop experiences. It was the suffering in my life that formed me, that formed my character, that forged my faith within me. Trials in life will make our faith and our trust in Jesus stronger. If we are willing to trust Jesus with our trials, now listen, he will redeem that which is painful and make it good in our lives. The way Peter illustrates that is he uses gold. I don't know a lot about gold, so I did a little research. What I learned is that when gold is mixed with impurities, it loses its value and it loses its beauty. To restore its value, to restore its beauty, you need to apply intense heat to gold. When you apply intense heat to gold, the impurities will 
go to the surface, and the goldsmith can skim off those impurities. Peter says your faith is of greater worth than gold. Your faith will last for eternity. Peter says that God has a greater interest in purifying your faith than he does all the gold in the world. And so what, what impurities do in your faith, and, and, and let me just say this, Christians are not perfect. We are not perfect if we know Christ. We are saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. We are filled with the Holy Spirit of God. But as I stand here today before you, Mike Sigmund, I am not perfect. My faith is filled with impurities. Until the day I die and go home to be with Jesus, I will have a faith that is imperfect, that is impure. And so here's what God gracious, now hear this, here's what God graciously does. He uses the trials of my life to imply intense heat to my faith so that those trials surface the impurities of my faith so that if I allow him, he will skim off the impurities and make my faith stronger and purer and indeed forge in me a godly character that is ever more like him. Here's how Paul describes that action in Romans chapter five. I want you to read these three verses with me out loud, okay? Here we go. We can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance, and endurance develops strength of character, and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment, for we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. And here's how it works. When the intense heat of trials is applied to your faith, it builds within you endurance, perseverance, makes you a stronger person. It forges in you a strength of character that is more like that of Jesus. It heightens your hope and gives you this sense of, man, I know where I'm headed. I have eternity in my heart. I can make it through whatever I'm facing on earth because I got Jesus on my side. That's what trials will do for the Christian. Now, I want to go back to the questions with which I opened this message. When trials do come, how do you handle them? Do you allow the trials of life to take you down or to build you up? Do you give up or do you grow up? Do you become bitter or do you become better? Because the decision is yours. I love how Bible scholar Edmund Clowney said, our trials keep us trusting. They burn away our pride and they drive us to the Savior. Oh, that is so true. Our trials burn away our pride. Oh yeah, I can handle this, I can do this. I'm, I'm on top of the world, I've got what it takes. And then the trials come and man, man. Do you ever, yeah, I mean like, man, trials will bring you to your knees, right? And you realize you can't do it. So you got a choice. Where are you gonna run? Who are you going to be driven to? 
Because here's the deal, trials will drive you. They can drive you to the wrong people and to the wrong substances, or they can drive you to Jesus. And you've got to decide. You've got to decide what your destination will be in the trials of life. I want to take you to another truth about trials that is found in 1 Peter chapter 1, and it is this fourth truth. Trials are full of emotion. Trials are full of emotion. Notice again how Peter opens verse 6, and there's, a, there's a, um, an interweaving of contrasting emotions here. This is what he says. In, in this, you greatly rejoice. Okay, with this, hey, we're, we're starting here in joy. We're rejoicing. Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. There is an intermingling of grief and joy when Peter and every other biblical writer talks about trials. Because here is the reality of the Christian life in the midst of trials. It is full of joy and it is full of grief. A couple weeks ago, Pastor Paul preached an outstanding sermon on grief. If you haven't listened to it, listen to it. It was outstanding. In that sermon, he made sure to underscore time and again, do not gunny sack, those are my words, stuff down your emotions in the midst of grief. If you want to cry, cry. Forget that nonsense about men don't cry. Forget that nonsense about we Pennsylvania Germans are stoic and we can manage our own way through things. No, we can't. Let the emotion out. You've got to do that. But what's interesting about trials in life in an eternal godly perspective, if you cry out to Jesus for help, you will both suffer some of the deepest grief but the greatest joy you've ever experienced in life. And both are absolutely essential. You've got to experience the grief to heal, and you've got to receive the joy because that's how he heals. Now, if you're sitting here saying joy, you know, laughter, you know, smiles, ha, 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 that is not joy. Biblical joy is a deep, settled confidence that God is in control of the details of my life. Biblical joy is a deep, settled confidence that God is in control of the details of my life. Say that with me. Biblical joy is a deep, settled confidence that God is in control of the details of my life. You can go through trials, and you can be at the very bottom emotionally while also experiencing a deep, settled confidence that God is in control of the details of your life. Some of you know this story. I've used it a couple times over the years to illustrate my own personal experience and how I learned this. Some of you don't know this story. Some of you were there. In 1986, my mother died in an automobile accident that occurred in Conestoga Township on a winter night when her car became stranded on a patch of ice on a long driveway where she was working at a private home. When she got out of the car to go for help, the car shifted back, pinned her against the tree. She died on impact. And she slipped underneath the car door 
my father was waiting for her to come home and she didn't, so he went down to the house to find her. And by the time the fire company, the ambulance, the police arrived, they found dad holding my mother and my mother was home with Jesus. It happened six months to the day before Jenny and I were to be married. It was in the days before there were cell phones. Some of you are saying, really, were there days like that? Yes, there were. I was living and working in Reading. They had to send somebody to knock on my door to tell me that news. I'm an only child. My relationship with my mother was very, very good and very close, and my father as well. By the time I got home that night, New Danville, that's not that large, was in our living room, our kitchen, our dining room. The people of our church were there. For the next four days, they came by until the service just to support and strengthen us and encourage us. It was the greatest trial that I had ever faced up to that 24-year-old Mike Sigmund. And one of the greatest trials that I faced in my life because of the nature of her death. So that night, when my dad finally was able to go to bed and our cousin Nancy Jane stayed with us that night, I tried to sleep, could not. You know what that's like, don't you? Many of you. So at three o'clock in the morning, I went to the back bedroom of our home in New Danville, where there were bookshelves, bookcases. And there was on that bookcase a book that I just bought that summer at Central Manor Camp Meeting. It was in the days when Central Manor Camp Meeting had a bookstore in the center of their tabernacle. The speaker that year and for many years was Dr. Lehman Strauss. I saw on that shelf the book, The Second Person, meaning The Life of Christ by Lehman Strauss. I've kept it all these years because of how monumental this book was to me. Pulled it off the shelf, three in the morning. Noticed on the cover it said, his suffering. <laughs> I thought, I can't think clearly enough to know what to look at in the scriptures, but I know that I'm suffering, so I'll read that chapter. And I don't know how to explain it with human words, except to say to you that this happened, and I believe it can happen for anyone who is willing to trust in the Lord in the midst of their trials. As I began to read that chapter and as I began to read the scripture that saturated Dr. Strauss's writings, I was awakened to the truth that though I am deep in grief, there is a God who loves me more than anyone else could love me. And he is calling me to trust him, to break silence and say, Jesus, I hate this. I hate this pain. I don't want this suffering, but I believe that you have a purpose, and I need you now like I never needed you before. And as I uttered those words, it was like he unleashed a river that flowed through the center of my grief. I was still grief-stricken, but at the same point, I had this incredible peace this incredible confidence that God was in control, come what may. To this day, I struggle 36 years later to try to use human language to explain it to you, other than to say this, when you go through trials, if you trust Jesus, there will be these contrasting emotions 
of deep grief and incredible joy. Just let them go. Live through them. Allow God to do the work he wants to do in you. Trust him fully and completely. John, you know that, don't you? As you face pancreatic cancer, as you've been in and out of the hospital, you've experienced the grief but the joy, the deep settled confidence that God has given you because of who he is. Trials are full of emotion. Don't deny them. Embrace them and find in them the joy of Jesus Christ. Leads me to one last truth, and that is simply this. Suffering doesn't have the last word. Suffering doesn't have the last word. Suffering doesn't have the last word. Who does? In verse 7, Peter tells us that when Jesus comes or when we go to him, he will bring more than an end to our suffering. He will actually bring praise, honor, and glory. Someday we will stand before him and he will give us praise, honor, and glory as we give him praise, honor, and glory. I love how Paul describes this in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And I love the truth that if we will fix our eyes on eternity, if we will fix our eyes on Jesus in the midst of our trials, and I want to tell you something, it took me a couple years to arrive at this point after I worked through the deep grief of my mother's passing, it took me a couple years to arrive at this point where I could say, Jesus, I would never want to live through it again, but what you've done in me, I don't want to give it back. You've made me a different man and a different pastor, and I thank you for what you did. I would never want to live through it again, but oh, Jesus, thank you for what you've done. Fix your eyes on Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 17 through 18, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Look at this. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. What is unseen? It's not what, it's who. He has a name. His name is Listen again to what Peter says in verses 8 and 9. You love him, Jesus, though you've never seen him. And though you do not see him now, you trust him. And you rejoice with a glorious, inexpressible joy. The reward for trusting Jesus in the midst of your trials will be the eternal salvation of your souls. There will come a day when all the trials of earth are over. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you will go home and you'll be with him. You will be with him. You will be with him. Now, I want to be very practical as I close. What if you are right now in the midst of a trial? What should you do? Run to Jesus. Pour out your heart to him. <laughs> Until the day I stop preaching, 
I will be saying this over and over and over again. It's sort of like a parent saying to their child the same thing over and over again. Why, yes, you reminded me of that. Yeah, I know, but I just want to make sure you remember. Run to Jesus. As a pastor, I've just watched this over the years. People run all kinds of places and to all kinds of people, but not to Jesus, even Christians. If you're in a trial, run to Jesus and run to him first. Plead, cry out, tell him exactly what you're facing. Now listen, if you need directions, ask for help. Because sometimes the trial is so deep, so overwhelming, you can't even see your way clear to run to Jesus. You're not sure where he's at. You're ashamed to say that because you're a Christian. You go to church. But sometimes the trial is so deep that you need help finding him. Yesterday, I said to Jenny as we were driving home from a graduation event, I said, I need help with an illustration for the sermon. Can you think of a time in our lives, in our marriage, when I wouldn't stop and ask for directions? She said, just one time? I mean, there are a lot of times. I said, well, I didn't want, you don't have to dump the whole load for goodness sakes. I, is it that bad? She said, oh my goodness, it's all, yeah, we'll just take this right-hand turn. I'm sure it's up here on the left. And she said, we never get there. We always end up doing what I say. Yes, I know, thank you, I got the illustration. I can be stubborn. I know I'm crossed the line when she says, okay, Lester, that's enough. That's my grandfather's name. <laughs> he was stubborn above all, so. <laughs> Don't be stubborn. If you're in a trial right now and you're having trouble seeing Jesus, it's okay. Ask for directions. That's why you got pastors. That's why you've got small group leaders. That's why you've got friends who love Jesus like you do. Ask for directions. Because there is no one who wants to help you like Jesus. No one but Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for your word. Thank you for teaching us simply about trials. Thank you for your work in our lives, in the course of our lives and trials. Lord, I, I'm sincere when I say that, man, I don't want to live through the specific trials that I've lived through, but I also don't want to give back what you've done in me through those trials. I'll never quite understand the intermix of those emotions and the reality of trials and the strengthening of faith, but I will thank you that nothing goes to waste in your economy when we trust you. So right now, I'm going to pray for those who are facing trials right now, that if they haven't run to you, that they would, and if they run to you, that you would continue to show up and do your perfect work in their lives. And for those who are just having trouble even finding their way to you, 
that they would simply, with whatever energy they have left, reach out and say, would you help me find Jesus? Thank you for hearing and answering our prayers, for being with us in the trials of life. We pray in Jesus' name. Well, thanks for listening to today's message and choosing to spend some time with us. To get more information about Grace Community Church, our service times and location, check out our website at gccws.net.